What I'd like to talk about this evening is emotional depth and emotional freedom. In this tradition and in this practice, we're encouraged again and again to cultivate steadiness and calmness and equanimity, to nurture a quality and a depth of inner poise and balance that allows us to receive all of the storms, the inner storms and the outer storms, without being shattered or overwhelmed. And I think we can hear the wisdom. We can hear the wisdom in this quality of inner balance. Because very often, or perhaps sometimes too often in our own experience, we know the painfulness and the chaos of having a broken heart or in being a victim of emotional chaos. We've perhaps too often felt the very deep painfulness that comes when we get lost in those very dark and intense spaces of anxiety or fear or hurt or resentment and the real painfulness of being caught in obsessiveness. And yet as much as we can hear the wisdom of finding this quality of inner poise and balance, we may also feel somewhat puzzled about how to find the interface of equanimity and poise with emotional depth. Sometimes it may seem like real emotional depth and, and serenity or, or calmness are almost incompatible. We can think, well, if we're really just equanimous, where is the emotional depth? They can feel like very polarized, very opposite qualities. And as much as we fear and try to avoid emotional chaos, we also, probably all of us, value emotional depth knowing that it is our capacity to feel deeply, our capacity to love passionately, our capacity to care fully, that all of this is what really bonds us on the most essential level with other people and with all of the world around us. Our capacity to celebrate, to rejoice, to grieve, to respond with the tenderness of compassion. All of that is actually the world of the heart. And that capacity to feel deeply is very often what reminds us of what it is to feel very alive, to feel fully alive and to be intimate with all things. So it's not unusual to wonder whether finding ease and balance in our emotional intensity, whether that might mean simultaneously a a loss or a sacrifice of emotional depth. And this, naturally, we're reluctant to do. I think sometimes our doubts and our questions around emotional balance and equanimity 
are sometimes reinforced when you see some of the pictures of or meet some of the, you know, senior monks and meditation masters in this tradition who are often portrayed with these rather grim and austere expressions, often almost giving the impression as if they've kind of transcended the heart and the world. And I know sometimes with some of the teachers I've had, it's kind of hard to imagine them ever sort of breaking out in song or rolling on the floor in laughter or loving deeply or weeping deeply. Of course, the truth is I never asked them, you know, and I don't ever actually know what their emotional landscape was like. What is clear, though, is that this practice is not a path of transcending or subduing our emotional potential, capacity, or creativity. It's not a practice of discounting or ignoring either the power or the values of our emotional world. And clearly, at least in my understanding, balance and equanimity are not the, do not imply the absence of emotion. The balance and equanimity actually suggest the possibility of discovering a great emotional depth and also an emotional freedom. And it may be possible that emotional depth and emotional freedom are the same thing. The landscape of our emotions is a very universal landscape that really doesn't know any boundaries. Grief and sadness and joy and love and fear and compassion, they live in all of our hearts, all hearts of human beings. They are, in a way, our shared language. Living in a fragile world, a fragile body, fragile mind, in which all of us, of course, do experience times of loss and change and separation and death, when we all encounter moments of unhappiness and disappointment, uncertainty and unpredictability, it is emotion. It is really the language of our heart that continues to teach us about our interconnectedness and our interdependence. We find ourselves actually able to reach out to someone who is grieving because we know what grief is. We find ourselves able to comfort someone who is hurt or fearful or sad because we know the language of those feelings in our own hearts. We can feel compassion, mostly because we know what it means and what it feels like to be touched by compassion. And we see very clearly that it is this emotional depth and really the language of the heart that connects us most deeply. When we are lost in emotional storms, when we're lost in emotional confusion, and intensity, I don't think we actually feel that connected. Then when we're lost in emotional intensity, we do very often feel more isolated than connected. 
how often we see that emotional storms and emotional intensity bring with them so many endless, powerful stories that when there's emotional storms, they bring with them so much chatter. And how in the midst of emotional intensity, what happens for us is that we become very contracted, sometimes we become very obsessive, and sometimes we become very preoccupied. And all of this actually isolates us. When we're in the midst of emotional chaos, we often feel actually very alone and very much caught in suffering. When we are caught in that kind of contractedness of emotional intensity, one of the things we don't feel is very free or really very intimate with anything at all outside of the boundaries of our own struggle and intensity. There is a difference between emotional depth and emotional intensity. In this practice, we do learn to attend very closely and very deeply to the language of our heart, to our own emotional life, and to learn how to find the creative power of depth, learn how to find the creative power of sensitivity that is made possible through emotion. We learn how to be wise within our emotions. And what that we learn to leave behind, what we learn to let go of, is not our capacity to feel, but we learn how to leave behind the feelings of contractedness and helplessness and fear. And we learn how to leave behind the sorrow of being lost and isolated. This is not easy. We often really feel quite helpless before the power of our emotions and believe or come to believe almost that mindfulness and emotion are somehow incompatible. You know, we can be mindful of our bodies. We can be mindful of sounds. We can be mindful of sights. Sometimes we can even be mindful of thoughts. Yet when strong emotions appear, we almost think, no, not this. Not this, you know. This is not the place where I can be mindful. Sometimes when strong emotions appear, it seems like they appear almost like an avalanche that crushes everything in its path, including our capacity to be present, mindful, sensitive, and aware. It is because of the power of our emotions that we are really called upon in this practice to cultivate emotional mindfulness and to cultivate emotional freedom. It's not about subduing emotions, but about learning to let go of the helplessness and the contractedness. On the eve of the Buddha's enlightenment, the Siddhartha sat down beneath the Bodhi tree. And if you read that story, you understand he sat amidst emotional storms. He sat and he met what is called Mara, the powerful forces of his mind and his heart. And Mara appeared in the form of anger, of hatred, of greed, of doubt, of lust and fear, 
And the whole story of the appearance of Mara is that Mara was beckoning and saying, come and get lost. Lose yourself in this. You know it. You're familiar with it. Lose yourself in this. And all of those forces that appeared in Siddhartha's night, of course, are familiar visitors to us all. And Siddhartha's response was not denial. There wasn't agitation or resistance, but instead to turn towards these powerful forces and to say so simply, I know you. I know you. To me, this is not a story of denial. It is a story of freedom that tells us that here too, here too, in the midst of these most powerful forces, we can find sensitivity and the spaciousness that rejects nothing and that embraces all things. The words, the capacity to say so simply, I know you, they're not, it's not shallow. It's not dismissive but instead really embodies a very profound attitude of openness, of welcome, of balance that really lies at the heart of all paths of awakening. Nothing that touches us is unwelcome. Everything that we can feel, everything that we can experience is worthy of our wholehearted presence. Is that wonderful Zen saying? It says, under the shade of the cherry tree, there are no strangers. A meditative journey, a spiritual journey, a sacred journey is a journey of diving deeply inwardly. And in that, really learning how to meet both our dragons and our angels equally. Because both of them have a lot to teach us about freedom. When we enter into this spiritual descent, we discover as we dive deeply that there is very little that is hidden from us. That we meet all of our dragons as well as our angels that there may be moments of great stillness and beauty and peace. We also discover that as we dive beneath the chatter of the mind that so often conceals the heart, that we encounter every feeling in the emotional spectrum. We may meet anger, fear, loneliness, doubt, every fragment of resentment we've ever harbored, all recycles itself, all comes into the light of attention. Here we can find poise and openness and balance. Here we recognize that we learn some of the most powerful lessons of our life that in the face of our dragons, it's where we learn about acceptance and patience and trust and the tenderness of compassion. And that it's also in the face of our dragons that we learn about freedom and most that we learn about how to have faith in ourselves. All of us in this path and in this 
descent inwardly. Encounter what the Buddha called the wilderness of the heart, the tumultuous world of our feelings, our fears, our doubts, our angers. And they seem to hold a lot of power. Sometimes they're habitual. We see some of our emotional patterns that really entangle us have been formed over a lifetime. That often some of these stickiest places, this greatest wilderness, are patterns that are often rooted in the past and relived over and over again in the present. And none of these emotional patterns or complexity will be dissolved by willpower or resistance or avoidance. And sometimes when they have really a long history, it's almost as if we resign ourselves to thinking that they're going to go on forever, that they're going to be perpetually present through our lives. Sometimes people can say, I've always been angry, I'm always going to be angry. You know, I've always been fearful, I'm always going to be. We feel powerless sometimes, yet the truth is we are not. We are not. This emotional wilderness invites a tender mindfulness to be closely present and the willingness to understand. And this emotional wilderness asks, perhaps more than anything else, to really understand that just because something has a long history, it does not imply that it has a long future. That mindfulness and awareness are both empowering and they are creative. Awareness is creative. Awareness, mindfulness is always seeking the paths of freedom in the midst of entanglement. Where is the freedom in this? How would I cultivate a sense of spaciousness and balance in the midst of this. Mindfulness is creative in that it not only illuminates where we are, but it reveals what is possible for us, the pathways of possibility that we may be able to walk in that moment. And we really learn through mindfulness that we are giving birth to both a present and a future that is both deeper and freer and just a repetition of the past. And personally, I would highly recommend some dissatisfaction with just repeating the past. <laughs> I mean, when do we have enough? You know, when is it enough? You know, how many times do we go through the cycle? And why? You know, is there an addiction there? Uh a lack of faith, a lack of confidence? Um, Is there a lack of investigation? You know, why does it go on? And when do we say, this now, this moment, maybe it is time simply to walk a different pathway? Our emotional world can feel powerful. Sometimes it actually also feels really quite dangerous. 
There is no other dimension of our lives that involves so much thought, so much energy, so much preoccupation. Don't you see it here that small emotions give rise to small and fleeting thoughts? Intense emotions, big emotions, they give rise to big thoughts that are not so fleeting. Intense emotions give birth to powerful, obsessive thinking. And the flood of agitation that colors our way of seeing and relating to the world and to ourselves in that moment. I think sometimes we also have a tendency to be very dualistic in response to our emotions, and we tend to divide them into categories of positive and negative ones. Good emotions, bad emotions. Nobody complains about loving kindness. Lots of people complain about anger. No one complains about moments of joy. Well, sometimes. (laughs) Everybody complains about moments of dullness. We see emotions that we call acceptable and others that we call unacceptable. And the the emotions that we deem to be negative, such as greed, anger, loneliness, what do we want to do with them? Are we happy just to be there? Mostly not. Because we deem them negative, that conditions our response to them. We want to get rid of them. We want to make them go away. We want to flee from them. We want to control them. We want to subjugate them. And sometimes we're almost tempted tempted to internalize some of the apparent social and spiritual taboos that are around these emotions. We look upon them as something shameful, a personal flaw, an imperfection that we need to hide or feel embarrassed about. We may even attempt, because of those taboos that we internalize, to somehow cut ourselves off from these difficult emotions. And we cut ourselves off from difficult emotions in many ways, you know, through fantasy, through, through avoidance, through pursuit of something else. And in doing that, we often create a very dangerous schism within ourselves. And too often, our bodies store those emotions that we tend to avoid. And very often, the emotions that we think we've managed to subdue return to shatter us in moments when we're most vulnerable. But this dualistic value system that we hold around our emotions does condition our relationship and response to them. We try to get rid or avoid the negative, or we get caught in the story of the negative, what we call the negative. You know, we try to explain them, why they're here, why I'm like this. We're almost, I think, tempted to believe that if we can find just the right explanation and pin it down, that that's going to be a solution. And it means we're not going to have that difficult emotion anymore. And yet it so rarely is. You know, sometimes we discover perfectly reasonable reasons that we have that difficult emotion. You know, it's not difficult to track. You know, we've been rejected or abandoned or hurt or, you know, something has happened, it seems, that has led to that difficult emotion. Does it help? Sometimes. And sometimes we're just equally overwhelmed. 
The emotions we value, now here we have a different response. Mm-hmm. We search for them, we dream about them, we pursue them, we try to maintain them when they're happening. We say, I want to be happy, I want to be peaceful, I want to be joyful, I want to be loved. And when these qualities feel inaccessible, or when they pass away, rather than being simply present with what is, we instead might find ourselves start to prowl the world, looking for the right sensation the right experience, the right person, that we invest with the power to make us happy, to make us loved. And I think sometimes in doing this, we sell ourselves into emotional dependency that is based upon projection. And rather than touching the reality that happiness and love and peace lies in our own hearts, We externalize it. Even the search for what we call positive emotions can be a perilous journey because we look for, start to look for emotional wakefulness or emotional depth outside of ourselves. And the moment that we start to look for emotional wakefulness or depth outside of ourselves, we are abandoning ourselves. We're disconnecting from the root of all of that that makes us whole. The externalization of happiness is a very predominant belief in our culture. We see how often in the externalization of happiness and joy that emotional intensity is confused with emotional wakefulness, and they are not the same. You know, in that externalization of happiness and the search for emotional wakefulness through emotional intensity, (laughs) you know, our roller coasters get higher, our horror movies get more graphic, violence becomes more prevalent, addictions become more pervasive because there's a search for emotional wakefulness but is confused with emotional intensity. You know, Joseph Campbell once said that what we're really seeking for is the rapture of being alive. And yet we seek for the rapture of being alive as somehow lying outside of ourselves. Our capacity to care, to sense, to feel deeply, this is something that has great significance and meaning because they are the qualities truly that enrich our lives, that bring intimacy, and that nourish our spirit. But our capacity to care and to feel deeply may not be the same as emotional intensity. Emotional intensity is dependent upon transient sensations and transient experiences. This is not emotional freedom when it is dependent on that. Discovering what emotional freedom is, that is a pathway we can only walk ourselves. It's not found in succumbing to waves of emotional intensity. Emotional freedom is not found in obsessiveness or preoccupation. And emotional freedom is not found in the stories and the dramas. Nor is emotional freedom, I think, found in trying to get rid of anything, you know, trying to avoid something 
And I think sometimes even that's an, an underlying agenda as we try to um, open to the difficult. You know, sometimes people say, I'm going to open to this difficult feeling. You know? And underneath it, there's the hope, if I do that, it's going to go away. Mm-hmm. Ramdas once said, you can't open to something in the hope that it'll go away because it knows. <laughs> you know? I think finally we come to realize that emotional freedom is found in understanding and in poise, in not being a victim and not being a master, because both of these are very fragile identities. Being a victim is an identity that is dependent on succumbing. Being a master is an identity that is dependent upon overcoming. And how can we expect to open our hearts to receive anything or anyone in this world if we can't open our hearts just to receive and care for our own hearts and our own emotional life? When we forsake the pathways of resistance and pursuit, there's really only one place left to be. And that is to turn our wholehearted attention, an interested, a calm, a peaceful mind, to be with this moment, to be with this experience, to be with this emotion, not to be lost, but to be fully present. And that's so different than trying to strategize around it, trying to get rid of it, trying to figure it out, All of that activity just makes us obsessed. And recently I heard someone say that if you find yourself in a hole, it's a good idea to stop digging. (laughs) It's good practice. We learn how to stop digging. Stop digging, you know. Just learn how to stand still and say, I know you. I know you. And it is difficult to hate something that you know deeply. But stillness is actually rarely our first response to emotional intensity. And yet stillness may very well be the key to emotional freedom. To really ask ourselves, is it possible to find that quality of unshakable balance in the midst of complex emotions? When we can take that step of questioning the assumption that we carry, that the world and the 10,000 things in it intrinsically holds the power to enrage us, to terrify us, to depress us, or to make us happy. When we can begin to acknowledge that emotional life and freedom begins in our own hearts and minds, if we don't question the belief that the world and the 10,000 things has the power to make us happy, then we are a prisoner of the 10,000 things. We delegate authority to everything outside of ourselves to govern our emotional life and freedom. Once had a friend who was mugged 
And she talked about the gauntlet of emotions that she went through after she was attacked. Rage, anxiety, feelings of powerlessness, feelings of vengeance, of vulnerability, a whole crescendo of intensity. And she said she came to realize, actually, that the mugger was in charge of her life. She thought about him, obsessed about him, feared him, and opened the door for her mugger to govern her heart. And then when she began to explore the depth of those feelings, really to explore, to be with the depth of those feelings, there was a shift that happened of accepting, of befriending, and began to reclaim her heart and mind. Havel, the Czech poet, statesman, once wrote that hatred has much in common with desire. With both come a fixation upon others, dependence upon them, and in fact a delegation of a piece of our identity to them. The hater longs for the object of, his ha- of her hatred, just as the lover longs for the object of her love. When we probe beneath the concepts that we hold, the stories that we hold about anger and sadness and fear, we do come to understand that emotions, of course, they are not fixed. You know, everything changes in this world except our emotions that they are not fixed, they're not static, and they are not preordained states that arise from nowhere. That all of our emotions involve our bodies, they carry feeling tones, along the way they pick up memories and associations and thoughts, and sometimes this whole process unfolds with such rapidity that it takes remarkable mindfulness to perceive it. And yet it's so important to find the doorways, to find the keys to understand this process. Emotions do have a beginning in the moment, in the moment of contact. You know, through the world we contact these very human experiences of sights and sounds and smells, sensations in our bodies, thoughts in our mind. These are what we contact each moment of our day. All of this that we contact has a feeling tone. Everything that we see, hear, feel, think has a feeling tone. It's pleasant, it's unpleasant, it's neutral. There's nothing wrong with that. That is just the nature of that experience. And yet so often those feeling tones hit or or connect with underlying tendencies. So that when there's an unpleasant feeling tone, how often it's overtaken by aversion. When there's a pleasant feeling tone, how often that's overtaken by clinging, by grasping. And when there's a neutral feeling tone, how often that's overtaken by delusion, the feeling that there's something amiss, something missing. And as, as these contacts with the world pick up these underlying tendencies... The world of association and memory and the story is written. The story is written in that moment. 
you know, it's like if you're walking, you know, if you've got two, two women walking in the driveway, you know, and the, the UPS truck comes. You know, well, for one person, you know, they may hear that sound, you know, here it comes up the drive, you know. They think, oh, slightly unpleasant sound, you know. It's an intrusion upon my mindfulness. It's a distraction from my mindfulness. You know, this poor mindfulness is so distracted. You know? And with that, with that sense of unpleasant and the sight aversion, the story is written, isn't it? You know, why is the world always invading my mindfulness? You know, why am I always in this position that something's interrupting me? I just had a good thing going, now I've lost it, you know? <laughs> the UPS truck, you know, for another woman walking on the driveway, you know, might see that brown van coming up hear the same sound, may actually perceive it differently, may perceive it as quite a pleasant sound, you know. Maybe it evokes some other memory. You know, maybe it's bringing a love letter, you know, from my partner who's not here. And another story is written, you know, the kind of looking, the seeing, what's being carried. That whole process goes on and on and on in our experience. There's nothing amiss. But we really need to question in that process as we write our stories over and over in the day. What is emotional intensity and what is emotional freedom? Emotional intensity comes in those moments when we get contracted, when we get lost, when we struggle when we get lost in our concepts, when we struggle, we say, I am, you are. What is emotional freedom? It's about learning how to listen deeply. Feelings of aversion may still come. Feelings of wanting may still come. But we stay still with them. We sense them deeply in our bodies and our minds. And the one thing we don't do is we don't conclude And how many of our struggles are actually born of our conclusions. And when we don't conclude, we see that those feelings, our bodies, the sensations, the sights, they're changing into something else. And instead of being stunned or helpless, we learn that we can bring a calm alertness, a sensitivity, a calm a presence into that unfolding process which continues to unfold. When we have the conclusions and the concepts, we interrupt the unfoldment of the process. We freeze it in time. We solidify it through a concept. And we are a prisoner of it. We are interrupting what can happen. What we introduce into this process are the factors of interest, of investigation, of mindful attention. Instead of saying, I don't want this, we say, what is this? What is this? Just interested. What is this? It is enough to say, what is this? To stay with that simplicity. So often we see that emotional intensity leads to self-definition. We say, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm fearful, I'm lonely, I'm self-conscious, I'm inadequate. When we insist on being someone, 
then we define all things by our conclusions. And we're prone, when we insist on being someone, we're prone to categorize and impose definitions upon everything else, friends and enemies and opponents and allies. And this is a world of struggle born of conclusions. To free ourselves of self-definition, to not insist on being anyone at all, liberates all things and all people and ourselves from the prison of conclusions. And then we have the possibility of seeing anew, approaching each moment of feeling as if for the very first time. When we're no longer so inclined to conceptualize ourselves or others, we discover quite a deep freedom. And we can, in that, explore the many interwoven threads of an emotion, sense what happens in our bodies, the changing nature of the feelings and the thoughts. It's possible to step out of the extremes of succumbing or overcoming and discover a simpler freedom of being with, of allowing, of letting be. The awakened heart is one that feels deeply, that loves well, that treasures forgiveness and compassion, who lives with profound sensitivity and sees the creative potential when our emotions are released and no longer imprisoned by the stories and the concepts and the conclusions. And discovering emotional freedom We discover it actually brings an immense richness and intimacy and connection into our lives. As Rumi once said, the only lasting beauty is the beauty of the heart. We take just a couple of moments quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.